What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Look, every single day, every single day, I wake up and I'm passionate about centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work. Right? We go through these seasons where people act like we're so in, we're so needed and precious, and then we go through these seasons where we're just treated disposably. Right? We've seen that. Uh, really heightened since 2020, the murder of George Floyd. And we saw all these pledges and stuff. And we saw all this, all this language and commitments from organizations. But now we're seeing a lot of folks renege on all those commitments and, um, and pledges, right? We're seeing black and brown folks continue to be disparately impacted by massive layoffs in the tech industry. The industry that was, was promoted as the place for black and brown folks to get some equitable treatment and to have some sort of financial security and wealth generation. We're seeing, we're seeing a continual uh, backtracking um, from the same people that boldly said that black lives matter. Okay. But the good, the, the good news is for me anyway, and for, for, for living corporate is we existed before diversity, equity, and inclusion was hyper in vogue. And we're going to continue to exist as diversity becomes a disgusting cuss word, right? The good, the other good news I'm going to say is, is that we don't really subscribe to all of that hyper uh, white liberal jargon. That is really what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. It's a bunch of different gobbledygook words that don't really mean much. That really aren't defined well. I'm excited about the fact that we have conversations with executives, activists, elected officials, entrepreneurs, influencers, artists, and every single week, dare I say every single day, (laughs) we're publishing content that challenges systems, structures, and people to do right by historically marginalized people. And by historically marginalized, I mean black and brown queer, black and brown trans, black and brown disabled, black and brown men, black and brown women, black and brown non-binary, black and brown first generation, black and brown people, right? The country is going to continue to get blacker and browner. And it's important that our voices continue to be heard. I still believe that the strongest weapon and the biggest gift I have is my voice. And Living Corporate is a megaphone and an amplifier for all things black and brown at work. So I'm happy that you're listening. Welcome to the network. We outside, baby. Let's go. Now look, the next thing you're going to hear, we're going to have, you know what I'm saying, our interview. I'm excited for you to check out this interview. Don't go nowhere. I'm going to see you in a minute. Peace. Shantara Hardy, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. You know what? I won't complain. You want me to make a difference. You know what? That's a that's a real talk though. Also, frames, fire. Super fire. Thank you. They look Thank great. Thank you. Thank you very much. They look great. You know, give them a little tortoise shell for the people. I am so I'm so I have a I have a genuine tortoise shell bias. I mean just super fire. Um Oh, you, I see you yeah, you got a you got a little bit up in there. I see little, you. Just a little just a dab. Just a dab on the on the um on the on the what's what was that lady name? These kind of remind me of who George Jetson wife? Jane um, Jane Jetson. They kind of remind <laughs> is that me. Her of, name? I think it's her name. Yeah, <laughs> Jane, his wife. Yeah, they kind of remind me of that. Oh, yeah. some Jane. It looks like some stuff that Jane Jetson. Because I was looking at the edges, but 
it's whatever. Jen is oh, really more of a construct like anyway. Point gone. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's, yeah. A, it's whatever. It doesn't really matter. Uh, listen, I, <laughs> um, we could go so many directions. I, I want to talk about the fact that you know you're a serial entrepreneur. You've built several businesses. Um, I want to understand kind of like your story and your background. Like, like let's let's start mm-hmm. let's start with that. Like, why why the business sector? You know, you've you've flexed between public and private sectors. Help me understand, like, where all this started. I am a black girl from the streets of the south side of Youngstown, Ohio. So I'm a Restfelt girl who have seen um, the devastating impacts of when a community is disinvested. That's where I come from. However, the statistics would show that what I've been able to do, I wouldn't have been able to do. And that's because of family, that's because of education. And so I've had a, what I call a portfolio career. I've been putting up my bets and and really focused on um, three areas that I would say guide the work that I do in public policy in placemaking and in prosperity. Those three things are the threads to the work that I've been able to do over um, my 20 20 year career. Um, I started out um, my career in government. I started out in Ohio House of Representatives after graduating from The Ohio State University. Um, And decided to go to graduate school. So I went to the School of Architecture and Urban Planning. And that's what brought me to um, the place that I now call home, which is St. Paul, Minnesota, to be the city planner. And then moved into a number of shifts in my career, all all aligned with as the work that I've been able to do. One of the things that um, really holds everything I do together is, is this quote. There's a quote. Um, that speaks to how you show up in your work and what you show up to do. And it's, it, it says, um, listen to the whispers so you don't have to hear the screams. And so all the work that I've been able to do from being a city planner, the moving into being a healthcare lobbyist focused on healthcare access moving into environmental sustainability and um, environmental justice, and then moving into executive roles in state government, working as the uh, deputy chief of staff for the governor here in Minnesota, and then moving to be appointed to his cabinet as the commissioner of employment and economic development, focused on prosperity and economic opportunity. So those are the roles that I've had from an established perspective, establishment perspective and threaded through those, I started four companies and all focused on how do we ensure that those that are proximate to the issues are not listened to when the level of noise coming from the neighborhoods, coming from the workplaces is at a tone that's unbearable. And so I've been trying over my career to ensure that I'm ear to the ground 
to make sure that whatever room that I step in, that I am ensuring that folks' voices, folks' stories are told, and the outcomes are there to be able to change the quality of life for folks. You know, it's interesting. You talk about your upbringing and, and alluded to, or not even alluded to, so you experienced firsthand what neglect looks like within like within the community. When you when you say that, what were the things that make you say, okay, there's community, there was community neglect here? Youngstown, Ohio used to be the backbone of the steel industry in the United States of America. And when the steel industry collapsed, it unfortunately was one of those places that there was no plan after. And you saw the impact of not having a diverse economy. And so there was nowhere else to go work because everybody worked there. So you saw unemployment rates very high, not just in a neighborhood, but the entire city. Hmm. You saw, you know, crime at an all time high. You know, if one of the things that is ever present for me is that I can count more funerals than number of dances I went to Hmm. growing, growing up, you know, parties, more funerals because of the violence when there is no vision of possibility to see something different, then you fall into what's in front of you. And so that disinvestment in all aspects of the built environment, in all aspects of the systems that are needed in order to have a strong, a safe, a innovative, and an invested in economy didn't exist. However, the social fabric of family and community, that existed. And that for me was through education and the opportunity to be invested in early in my education. You know, you talk about, we're going back to the quote that you mentioned about, you listen to the whispers so you don't hear the screams. You know, the whispers for you, I don't want to speak it for you. It sounds like those whispers had a lot to do with advocacy, empowerment, those three areas that you talked about earlier as well, opportunity, um, you know, in, in community enrichment, you talked about economic diversity. Um, I'm also hearing that even like, and throughout this, through your journey, starting in government, building multiple businesses, that there's a through line there of, of purpose, because you, you, you clearly identified that early in your life, because really fueled by your circumstances. Is that right? Exactly. The opportunity to be able to learn as much as I can, experience as much as I can in order to go back and make those investments happen. Um, Having that as my North Star was like, okay, you need to learn that. You need to learn that. You need to understand that. Because it runs as a system and understanding how all these people, all these pieces move together Mm. in particular policy and the decisions that are made that, you know, that proximity to power, who are the people that are making those decisions that's going to in turn determine what investments are made in a community. And that for me has always been the drive to understand how different systems work 
and understand the opportunity from a place of, okay, that's all I need to know. All right. All right. Let me go. And then let me go tell my people, this is what y'all do next. This is what y'all do next. It, it, it would seem as if there's a, there's a dance uh, between public and private uh, private sectors to actually mobilize economic growth, especially like in a localized context. I'm curious, have you, what experience or perspective do you have when it comes to like involving like activists and grassroots organizations in that, uh, in that dance? Right. And I ask, I think about, I think about like the murder of George Floyd. Right. Um, and I've, I've shared this before. It's interesting just how, the degree of separation for, for black folks, black and brown people, I'm a specific, for this conversation, I'm going to say black folks, um, how short they are, right? So George Floyd uh, was living in Minnesota, but was just in Houston and was in ministry with people that I was doing ministry with down here. Mm. And then my dad lived like 20 miles away from the man who murdered George Floyd, right? And so mm. I remember, I remember that moment. I remember like how visceral it was, obviously, um, your experience with that ha- was, of course, much more visceral as you are a, a member of that immediate community. But I think my point here is, is I recall at that point in time, Black Lives Matter protests were were surging across the world. I also remember then that there were private sector organizations, pri- the private sector, re- they, they were... At, even though they were in the middle of cutting their DEI programs, suddenly started reinvesting back in those DEI programs and then started really mm-hmm. mobilizing vendors and things. But that really wouldn't have happened without the pressure from the grassroots activist organizations. And I would imagine also the pressure from policymakers and people working in the private sector as well. So like, I'm just curious, like, do you see, do you see grassroots and activist um, organizations as part of that larger ecosystem for economic growth and mobility? 100%. I often say that the best policy um, pass should have started on the block, went to the boardroom, and then went into the floor hmm. of either the House, the Senate, the City Hall, or the County. Hmm. The understanding that at the end of the day, when you come back around what is happening on the ground, those folks are the closest to the opportunity, to the impact, and to the stories that should make its way into whatever that policy. Being here in Minnesota for that time, um, I think back on it, I, I, I had the responsibility um, to hold both worlds during that time. My consulting firm, Amethyst Advisory Group, does crisis. Um, And also one of the things that we focus on, one of our drivers is, is called the business of public policy, that I believe that as a business owner, as a CEO, it is your fiduciary responsibility to understand what's happening in public policy because at the blink of an eye, it can change your bottom line. And I had the unique bird's eye view that I was a part of the leadership team in the governor's office leading the crisis on the ground during George Floyd. 
and helping our state and eventually our world navigate through that moment as many parts of our state were burning and helping them navigate through that and seeing that. And to your question around that involvement in grassroots, having direct conversations with the activists that were themselves patrolling the streets and protecting businesses and making sure that we knew their whereabouts and their safety to ensure that um, the interaction with law enforcement was positive. While at the same time, I was consulting with over 70 Fortune 500, 100 businesses here in the state that came together to form the Minnesota Business Coalition for Racial Equity mm. that wanted to come together to figure out how they respond to that fateful day and move together. So the who's who of the corporate world joined this coalition and I helped build out the infrastructure of that organization to one, make sure that it was meaningful and focused on the right things, mm-hmm. ensuring that that commitment, which I think we can talk about has gone by the wayside, but at that time, the commitment was there. My job was to meet it at the courage door. Let's actually do something. Let's not just sit here and talk about it because we have been. Yeah. And for me sitting at those tables, but with a history, as I told you, my previous role was deputy chief of staff. I was responsible for emergency management. So my history comes with not only helping the state get through George Floyd, Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, navigating all of those crises and understanding that we cannot do what we said we were going to do last time because we didn't do it and think that we were going to get something differently. But for me, I have had my most success in navigating crisis because of those relationships on the block and because of those relationships in the boardroom Mm. and understanding how they are interconnected in their goals from an outcomes perspective of safe communities, of invested communities. And so that for me, um, it's threaded in everything I do. You know, I recall, you know, our folks took to the, um, the highways when that unfortunate death of Philando Castile. And I recall being on the phone with the leaders of Black Lives Matter, like you got 10 minutes on this freeway. And then the National Guard is going to get, they're coming to get you. And they were like, Mm -hmm. okay, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. But that was relationships. That's understanding the power of relationships, but also respecting that there's a continuum in advocacy. Mm -hmm. And if you don't respect that, I was in the ivory tower. If I didn't respect those folks on the front line, literally putting their bodies, their lives, their family, generations at risk to ensure that our community can be something better. If I didn't understand that in my, that every tower, no success was going to ever come to me. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that, right? Cause I think there is like this, there's this odd game that I, I do believe is played like with, with black and brown communities where you have folks who put on, there's, there's, they're almost like, they're, they're actors, right? Like, so they, they don't necessarily come from those communities and they don't particularly maybe even have like the, a genuine level of investment or relationship with mm-hmm. these communities, but they, but they're often seen on camera. They're, they're, they're at the front of the stage when things happen, but it's like, 
they don't they're not necessarily plugged in it's like there's this it's it's really like a to me fairly like obvious level of classism and separation like within this space like but what i'm hearing from you is again like you have an actual relationship and plugged in on the ground with these people and like to your point like recognizing where you sit you being in an ivory tower and then people being on the on the on the ground that isn't that does not illustrate some level of class difference or um or, or better, or some type of level of hierarchy. It's genuinely about where you are placed, and then respecting, res- respecting all the various parties therein, so that you can actually work together for a common goal. That's a that's super dope. Because uh, I, yeah, I, I'm challenged, Shantara. Because like, I want. I'm just sometimes I see something. I'm just like, yo, like, are you really trying to like help? Are you just trying to be part of like this overseer class? Like, mm-hmm. like what? Mm-hmm. Like what? Like what? How authentic? is this working space for real? Because like, what are we actually doing now? Something you said though, um, about, you know, you brought together these 70 organizations at the time. And I remember like, I'm Chantel, like I remember, cause I was at, um, I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time. And like, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like being black mm-hmm. was like treated like the most in vogue thing. We were in style. We was in style. People was giving me free ice cream Asked me about my day. You know what I'm saying? They were How you doing? How are you? How really? are how are you really? How Can are I you really? how are you really? How am I really, Bob? I don't I mean, I don't know. I mean, you control this whole company. I'm I don't don't talk to me, man. You, you, you made me nervous before you make me nervous. Now you're making me more nervous. What you doing? So right. so 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 here's a but 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 to your point, we've seen a really like like a full scale retreat away from a lot of those multi-million dollar, uh, can't, you know, commitments and things like that. Side note, before we get there, I just want to, cause, cause this is the first time I've asked somebody on the record or like on the show about this. Can we talk about like, it'd be feeling, I, do you think that people understand like when like a multi-billion dollar company makes like a seven figure multi-year commitment that that's not really a lot of money? Do you feel like people realize that when they do that? One of the things that I um, know to be true when these types of situations happen is emotions do the math. Mm. And the technical part of the brain doesn't do the math Mm. in terms of like, wait a minute, you are a billion-dollar company and this is the, this is this actually just coming from one department. This ain't even like. Can you empty the get the get the get it out the couch? I ain't naming no names because when I tell you that a national they ain't even go to the couch. They literally was walking down the stairs and it was like you know like is that a quarter right there? Let me, let me get, pick that up. Get that to them. Flip that over there to them. Like that over there you, you see, like you see, like these multi-billion-dollar companies. And it was, I remember, it was like we're gonna donate five million dollars over the next seven years. But let me tell you, let me tell you what it was. You know, there's a couple things. If I may get in my finance bag, please. There were a couple of organizations in the finance space that said that they were going to donate all of these millions of dollars with these programs 
with loans and 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 most of them actually went to venture capital and i i will tell you that i sat down with most of them as they wanted to, to enter into this space of minnesota at that time as being one of you know there's you count all five of us on our hand that had raised venture over a million dollars here in minnesota and so wanting to have a conversation and the thing that I said to them was, you have not showed up on Nan Street and educated Nan person in my best English about cap tables, about venture debt, about angels, nothing. And I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to open up my Rolodex to get you founders to get access to a pot of money that you have never educated us on. Secondly, you are not gonna change your underwriting rules that are discriminatory and have barriers in access. So I'm still gonna have to go through the same loose, but you're gonna put me through a program, you're gonna educate me and mentor me, when at the end of the day, you know that 0.006% of the funding we're going to black women but you also know that we were the fastest growing cohort of business starters in the United States of America. You go do the math. Right. I think you are the problem, mm -hmm. but I'm supposed to be excited that you just put this commitment out here to make an investment of something that, that is not even in our lexicon. And the ability to be able, here's the thing, the ability to be able to pull back all those commitments so quick because we went in the pipeline. Right. Because if you had signed contract, you, you, your legal part would be like. Right. So that, to your point, right, like the, the pledge, that's why I'm always, and so I do not have a finance background. Um, I don't either. I play on TV, but when the math ain't math and it just ain't math. Math ain't math. But I, I'm also really, I'm, I'm big on language. So when you said back and you say you're pledging something to quote unquote efforts or quote unquote, quote unquote initiatives to support the black community. And frankly, this, this is, this is applicable to, to anything to support whatever cause. It's like, what does that actually mean? Are you saying that you're like just potentially earmarking a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of your revenue to make, to be considered just going to go into some hypothetical pot to be applied in some future time. That was a fine print. That was a fine print that emotions did the math that we did not look at the fine print for the guarantee that no matter what, you wouldn't be able to pull these resources back. That was a fine print. And that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And it makes me so sad and so angry because the number of folks that position themselves to get the resources to do the work and then for the rug to be pulled from under you, not because you don't have the money. Right. Let's, all, let's also just stay there because we can look at balance sheets. It's not because you don't have the money. Right. You're running for, you, you put out a granular statement and now you're running from that statement because that statement now has you potentially landlocked from a legal perspective on can you target your dollars to certain groups. It's pre that's, that's pretty sad. 
you know, and 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 honestly, we saw this we saw this uh, retreat prior to even this moment that we're in right now, where we're seeing like um, uh, white folks, but not all white folks, white uh, <laughs> far right wing, but also like also uh, supposed liberals um, castigate DEI as the new boogeyman, um, and so we're seeing even further retreat, right? I'm I'm curious, like, as you think about where you sit today and the organizations that you've stood up, that you lead, the relationships that you have, like, what are conversations looking like right now as it pertains to mm-hmm. um, as it pertains to commitment to marginalized people across the board? Again, not, we're not talking about, quote unquote, just black people we're talking about black folks, brown folks, queer folks, disabled folks, women, um baby boomers like what is what are those conversations looking like and do you anticipate um a different position um yeah so a couple ways i'll answer i'll answer this from the work that i do in my companies i'll take two of them for example my company certified access is a supplier development company we help women of color fast track their application for certification to do business with government and corporation. That company is right in the crosshairs of the just terrible lawsuit that was lodged against Fearless Fund in Atlanta. The ability to be able to target resources to the least invested individuals in the United States of America. And so for us in the work that we do, we are relentless about the fact that at the end of the day, being a competitive supplier is what we're going to position the women that we come across for. You can take your programs away because we also know that we are building companies that are delivering product and services that matter to the economy. You're going to purchase goods and services. If you, you're afraid you want to get rid of your program. And so my work in, in our company is how do we ensure that women of color are competitive, that they have strong back offices, that they are suppliers of choice, that they have the capital that they need. That doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Our desire, our ingenuity to build businesses does not go away because programs go away. Mm. And remembering that is something that we have to do. We are huge contributors to this economy, to our GDP. We can't forget that. Yes, the rug is being pulled because fill in the blank of all the reasons, but the understanding of our power, our ability to build product and services that matter, that are solving some of the just most, we think about what's the biggest thing that we're talking about in the United States, artificial intelligence. In terms of the research and the ingenuity, a lot of that came from black women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're still, so how do we make sure we do that? The other flip side of this in terms of folks retreating as in another industry, in terms of my company, Plural's a venture-backed company. Since our founding, we've raised close to $15 million in VC funding. When you pull the curtain back and do the math um, around 
what's happening in the marketplace with VCs um, shuttering, with folks not putting money out there on the street for an all black team like ours going out to raise our series, whatever, one, our valuation is at threat. Hmm. We, we were already, you know, at the back of the starting line hmm. coming in, trying to break through the door. Hmm. So now we're in this environment of fear, this environment of underinvestment and this environment of undervaluing. Hmm. And so that's the reality of what's happening right now. And so the ability to navigate still delivering the best product and service, the best customer experience for stakeholders that interact with your company, that doesn't go away. Mm. And that's something that when you think about the responsibility to understand what's happening outside of the doors of your organization, we have these extra layers of responsibility. Like they can, the, the KPIs of companies that don't have to think about barriers in the venture space and Think about social issues that's happening outside their door, inside their families. Like that's an extra layer of responsibility as a business owner that doesn't go away when you take your program away, when you dismantle affirmative action and, and, and. The holistic being that we are and the commitments seen unseen said or unsaid that we have to the types of things that we desire to build it comes with all that Ooh, Shantara two fire I <laughs> there's so much more we could go to I kind of want to leave it here and do like a part two like <laughs> I do that's what we're gonna do that's what we're gonna do listen Shantara um it has been a pleasure um, and an honor uh, to have you on Living Corporate today. Uh, consider you a friend of the show. I know we've talked offline. Um, yes. But but I am thankful for your work. Um, we I want to continue for us to have these conversations about policy, um, impacting mm-hmm. local economies, the importance of economic diversity, um, the 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 role that um, um, population diversity plays in economic diversity too. Like yeah. There's a lot of conversations we we can be we can have, and I look forward to having them with you. Um, before Let's we do it. before Let's we do let it. you go, um, top three points of advice for organizations trying to figure out how they can make a better impact or make the most impact in their local markets uh, related to investment and building, frankly, that population and engagement to help sus- grow and sustain their business over time. Um, number one, talk to each other, making sure that mission aligned organizations are talking to each other. Number two, which is all bias is understand these externalities. You cannot put your head down for what's happening in public policy this year. This year is going to be one of the hardest years. I know we said that last year and the year before. With the elections coming up and so much at stake, how to figure out where you're navigating from that perspective. And thirdly, 
please be curious about alternative ways to raise capital, funding, figuring out, you know, where are those other places to go to be able to raise um, resources to be able to support the work that you're doing. And partnership back to number one is something that we are probably going to have to do even more of because so many different organizations are at the mercy of what's happening outside their door and folks are day by day being pulled under. And if we want to sustain great organizations that have committed, not pledged, to strong communities and have the courage to stay with it as best that they can, we have to work together to ensure that they're able to start, sustain, and thrive. Mm. And I think that's the most important thing. Shantara Hardy, leader. Thank you, guys. Leader, entrepreneur, policy shaper, game changer. Mentor, a lot of jobs. educator, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant mind. Let, can't, can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you. And we're back. Yo, thank you so much for rocking with us at Living Corporate. So excited. Uh, make sure that you check out the links in the show notes. You can learn more about Living Corporate. If ain't nobody else tell you today, I'm going to tell you right now. I love you. You matter. Take care of yourself. Later. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.